Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. JJ for that great introduction, and I also want to give a shout out to all my listeners from around the world. The United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Norway, Germany, India, Israel, Australia, France, Denmark, Spain, Sweden, South Africa, Rwanda, Senegal, Ireland, Burundi, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Pakistan, just to name a few. I want each of you listeners to please realize how much I appreciate each and every one of you. When you leave your comments, your reviews, they are so very much appreciated, and I thank you for all those who have taken the time to do that. It not only means a great deal to me personally, but it also will help the show be even a greater success than it already is, and the greater the success it is, the more people are going to be helped by these incredible stories that we share on Never Ever Give Up Hope. So thank you. With me today is Fran McElvey. She is an author of Trapped, My Life with Cerebral Palsy. That's quite a challenge. And I am so thrilled to be able to finally meet her and talk with her and see what she has to share with each one of us today. This is a subject that is going to grip the hearts of many of my listeners because many of my listeners have expressed that they have to deal with a debilitating disease of some source or have a member of their family who is suffering. And Fran is going to offer her insight on not only how to deal with this illness and any illness per se, and also share her challenging story with us. In my books, she is truly an overcomer, and I look forward to hearing how she maintains a, as she calls it, normal life. Welcome, Fran. Good afternoon, Carol. Thank you so much for welcoming me on your show. Oh, I'm very pleased. I'm excited, and I started reading your book, and I wish I could was able to finish it, but I definitely uh, will be able to finish it, and I also can recommend it. So Thank let's you. start, first of all, by telling us about your your birth, what happened. I understand that you are a twin as well, and also your early years with this crippling disease. That's right, Carol. I am a twin, and cerebral palsy always shows up more, more often in cases of twinship. Um, you quite often find one twin is perfectly ordinary, like my sister, she was born normal, but because of birth delays and oxygen deprivation, 
quite often that causes brain damage. Really? Cerebral palsy is about brain damage. And the, um, the reason is that you suffocate at birth or there's problems with delivery or something of that nature. Uh, because it's brain damage, the number and types of different debilitations are very, very, um, there's a huge spectrum of ability and disability within cerebral palsy itself. I was very lucky. I was at the better end of the scale, although when I was growing up, I didn't feel like that. Right. It felt as if um, it was very unfair that I should be the one stuck sitting on the step at the back, at the back of the house while everyone else was running around and doing stuff. It wasn't until I was five and a half or so that I actually started to walk. Um, but um, when you're a kid, you know, you just take what you get. And it, it, I wasn't an unhappy child. I wasn't an unhappy baby um, until I sort of began to notice people looking at me oddly or with that funny expression in their faces, which means I pity you. Oh. It took a while for that to sink into me because before then I had just enjoyed the feeling of being alive like we all do when we're when we're mm-hmm. there isn't any sense of um, difference between us and other people so it took a long time for that to sink in and it wasn't until I was about seven or eight that I realized it was a problem supposedly but, were, you, uh, were you bullied in school as a result do you think or not directly. In fun, funnily enough, it wasn't me that got most of the bullying. It was my sister, my twin, and she didn't tell me about it. When we were very young, I used to bully her because I was unhappy. Okay. Um, because I because she was able-bodied and I could see her walking around and I just made the the contrast. It was almost like a she was in front of me all the time. So it was like a bit of a taunting, you know, there's an able-bodied child and here am I, I'm not as able-bodied as she is. Um, that sort of changed as I got older because I realized she must feel unhappy too. She used that to right. tell me that I wish I wish you were um, able-bodied, Fran, and I'm sorry that I'm not, that I can't share your suffering with you in a sense. Hmm. She, used, she used to try and take it away from me by doing stuff for me, by being with me all the time. And gradually I noticed that she actually <coughs> suffered as well. Um, I think the, the, the lot that siblings have to deal with is quite often underestimated. Hmm. Uh, we just assume that they're okay and they get on with their lives, but quite often they suffer too. And certainly my sister was bullied at school because of me, which was really hard for me to deal with because she didn't tell me. She's always looked after me in that way. Even as a child, do you feel that this disability made you more compassionate? Not as a child, no. I wasn't at the age where I could appreciate what that meant. Okay. And, and really all I was able to do was just keep moving forward. I found it so challenging to <coughs> compare myself with other people and find myself wanting, as in lacking, that all I could do was focus on my moving forward and keeping up with other people. It wasn't until I was much, much older that I began to notice that Really, I should extend compassion to others. It sounds terrible, doesn't it, really? (laughs) No, not at all. It's totally understandable and very honest, (laughs) and it's appreciated. Was there, um, did your parents treat you differently, and did that cause any problems in the home between you and your sister or other members of your family? 
Well, I have a twin sister. I also have an older brother and an older sister. Uh, and when I came along, well, of course, my sister and I came as a joint package. But before I came along and my sister came along, my brother and sister had organized a kind of truce. They, they got my parents' attention between them and they worked mm. out how to do that. And then we came along and suddenly everything was very different. Um, so there were problems in that it was difficult for them to adjust to me. Um, because I got a lot of attention, Carol, but it wasn't necessarily the right kind of attention. Right, that's what I was asking. I, it was kind of, um, you know, do your exercises, Fran, uh, be a good girl, sit up straight. And one of my mother's mantras was um, um, eyes open, mouth shut, <laughs> which, which I think I'm quite grateful for in retrospect. <laughs> but it's, it's quite tough when most of your interaction with your siblings or your family is about changing the way you appear or making you feel that you have to do something to be better, that you're not good enough as you are. So if I was left sitting on the back step, which I did a lot, it was kind of a case of, you know, do something or, or be good or be grateful or be happy. I got a lot of that. You know, be happy, Fran. Um, you're very lucky. That was something my father used to say a lot. And of course, when you're really young, you just don't understand how being disabled is something right. to be grateful for. Of course, I understood that on the spectrum of disability, I was quite fortunate. Um, but I still didn't feel very lucky. <laughs> um, so did this change at some point in your life? Yes, it did. It did change. But surprisingly, it didn't change until relatively recently. And partly that was because of the writing I've done and the um, the ability that that's given me to see things from a much wider perspective. Because when you're disabled, I think you spend a lot of time struggling just to keep going. And that makes you quite introverted and your focus is quite short. So you don't actually see things going on around you. People have often said that I'm self-absorbed and in some way, you don't really have any choice because you're focusing so much on the things you have to do just to get from A to B. Yes, and to be a normal. Yes, so the, the physical effort that takes does shorten your focus. You become short-sighted, but that's not because you want to be. It's just because the effort of keeping up makes you short-sighted. So as I've got taller and I've been more relaxed and also as I'm more established and I know what I'm going to do with my life now, I can afford to let my gaze widen out a bit. And then I see people who are just like me, but they're different. They hobble, they have, you know, one leg, they have bad hips, they have, um, you know, all kinds of ailments. Right, right. And so it that doesn't bother me so much anymore because I begin to notice that people are all frail. They all have difficulties. And it doesn't make you different or special. It As someone, gives, sorry. It, no, it just gives you unique challenges, that's all. As someone once said, we're all disabled. It's just a matter of degree. That's right. That's right. Did you have to talk to yourself? Did your parents help you with that? I mean, they were that, telling you that you were special and that you, know, you were lucky, but you had your own thoughts. So how did you come to a place where you did not feel sorry for yourself and realized your own self-worth? That took a very, very long time. The thing is, um, I felt sorry for myself, but there was more to it than that. And my mother always used to say to me, oh, stop feeling sorry for yourself. But in fact, the underneath that, there was a great deal of grief for lots of things that I couldn't express because grief is something that you start feeling when you're very small. 
and it starts when you're pre-verbal so you don't necessarily have the words for it so the grief I felt I had to deal with that before I could stop feeling sorry for myself in a way interesting um, go ahead it just it just makes it clear to me that there's no point pretending that everything's all right when it clearly isn't yes and that, that what you need more than anything is the courage to be honest about how you feel as soon as you can be honest about how you feel you stop worrying about how people perceive you so much and then you can be clean with your emotions so once i was able to express my grief honestly and then I was able to stop feeling pity for myself because then I began to realize, actually, you don't need people to feel sorry for you. You don't need people to pander to you, to hold the door open for you, to, to, to treat you with kid gloves. You don't need that anymore. You can cope. You can, you'll be fine. But it, the help came to me from other people, lots of other people I spoke to who explained things in different ways for me, who allowed me to see things from different perspectives that I hadn't been aware of. And also, um, coming out into the world and meeting other people with disabilities and seeing how they cope with them was very, very refreshing to me. And it made me realize that actually I'm just like everyone else. So I felt really good about that. Um, and that really helped a lot. I'm going to bring up something that I've often wondered about. And it kind of touches on what you just said. And that is this. In our daily life when we are in a store or in the post office or wherever we might be and we run across somebody who is disabled in general as human beings we smile and nod and you know and we greet them and I've often wondered do I is it appropriate for me to extend um, like my asking if I can open the door for them or just going ahead or is that an insult to them I realize everybody's different, but you understand I'm trying to come from the other perspective and, and I never wanted to make someone feel like I feel pity for them, but yet I also want to be helpful. So can you talk about that fine line? I could try. I mean, everyone's perspective on this is different depending on their disability, exactly. how they were brought up <clears throat> and, and how they see the world. But if, if you saw a mummy with a large pram and three kids, trying to get in the store door you would open the door for her and there'd Good be no point. question and there'd be no question that that was the right thing to do and she would probably say oh thank god someone's there to hold the door for me because i haven't got six pairs of hands mm-hmm. you know and that would just be a thing you would share with her and you might have a wee joke and you might just get on with your life then that's fine so i think if you're the kind of person who holds, who holds doors open for other people then you would hold it open for someone else who needed your help it's it's a difficult line, as you correctly point out. You don't want to patronize someone. But I think if you can be friendly when you're trying to help, then that's all you can do. If the person who you're giving help to resents you, then you've done your best. You've tried to help them as you would help anyone else. Because you're not making a special effort for that person, necessarily. You're just doing what you would do to help anyone in that situation. I'm going to take that to heart. I really appreciate that because there are several disabled people in our community. You know, we live in a small community, and Mm -hmm. I often wondered about that. So I will just approach it um, 
just as, like you said, if it was a mom with a small child or something or an old lady that was having a struggle pulling the heavy door open. So I really appreciate that, and I thank you. And I'm sure that my listeners probably, there are some out there that are wondering the same thing. So thank you for addressing that. Thank you. I was very gracious. All right, so you got through school, and obviously you went to college because you became a lawyer. So tell us about that challenge and maybe share a couple insights or stories regarding your life as a lawyer or your school um, education, whatever you would like to share. Okay, well, I went to a girls' school, uh, a small girls' school in Edinburgh, Scotland, and then I went up to Aberdeen University, and I did law because it was one of the few things that I could do. I wasn't very good at science. <clears throat> I couldn't be a doctor because I'd fall over um, I, you know, there are lots of careers that you can't do. You can't be in in a in a in the retail trade. You can't be carrying trays with glasses on them. There's all kinds of stuff you can't do if you've got a physical disability that affects your walking. So I decided to do law because at least it was kind of semi-intelligent. And I <laughs> and I thought that if I did law, that no one would patronise me. They would think, oh well, here's a clever girl. She's obviously got some brains up top. Um, but then, of course, I realized afterwards, you can't wear a T-shirt for your whole life that says, don't patronize me, I have a law degree. So actually, <laughs> actually, you meet people who will patronize you regardless of who you are, what you've studied, and how many degrees you have. It makes no difference at all. But I did law because I needed to prove to myself that I could do it. Because mm. um, people would very happily shove you into a little job, um, you know, doing filing in a basement somewhere, if they could think that was all you could manage. I had to prove to myself I could do it. So that was one reason why I did it. Doesn't mean I enjoyed it, Carol, because I didn't enjoy it oh, really? at all. See, the only subject I really enjoyed was traditional Chinese law. Which really? Is fascinating, absolutely fascinating subject. What kind uh, of law yeah. did you practice? I did um, uh, real estate, small domestic real estate. Okay. Uh, buying and selling houses and stuff and small partnership stuff, a few executories, that kind of stuff. Um, it's fairly low-key, but it was good fun, and it was nice to meet real people with, you know, you're dealing with all their assets and their whole lives. Right. Really challenging, you know, just to just to get on with that. But it was, that so was you, good. you came to a place then in your life where you said, hmm, no more of this, this is what I want to do. So how did you make that transition, and how difficult was that for you? It was very difficult to answer your question in reverse order. It was very difficult to make that transition because I spent, I think, about 20 years in the law. And half of that was training and practicing and getting used to it. And the other half was trying to get on with my work. But it didn't really suit me, Carol. I have to confess that the work was very cerebral um, and it didn't give much room for kind of artistic leanings or creative leanings. It was all about what we expect from you and this is what you have to do. And it it was using one tiny part of my brain, so I didn't, didn't enjoy it at all. But then uh, I sort of decided I had enough, so I left. I actually walked out of my last job, hmm. which, which was pretty dramatic, but I think I don't think I could have done anything else because I was so profoundly unhappy. And it wasn't necessarily their fault, but I think it was an admission that I was in the wrong place doing the wrong kind of work. So I left. 
And then I thought, well, what am I going to do with myself? You know, I can't just sit around being housewife for the rest of my life. I've got a brain in my head. And besides, I knew already that if I sat around doing nothing, I'd drive my husband up the wall. <laughs> I knew that. So I had to get something else to do. But I think about six months after I left, I became pregnant. So I had my daughter. Really? Okay. Yeah. So you have you have the one daughter then? Yes, I have one daughter. And that happened after you left your job. So your your next career was cut out for you. Exactly so. <laughs> yes, exactly so. I got pregnant um, actually about six weeks after I left, not six months. Um, and um, Celine came along in June 2003. So I was a stay-at-home mom. I had so much to do to learn to get on with Celine and how to raise a kid. And, and really how to stay calm enough to do it properly while being sleep deprived. And <laughs> now, did, did your disability pose any uh, risks or uh, was there a concern or, or did you have a healthy pregnancy? I had a wonderful pregnancy. I wasn't sick at all. I had no morning sickness. Wonderful. Um, I was very slim. There was almost no bump at all. But I ended up having a section because I thought, well, I'm not going to take the risk that there's going to be a problem at delivery. Right. And then, and then have to have an emergency section. I'd rather have it organized properly early on. So I had a section, uh, stayed in hospital five nights after Celine was born and then came home. And it was like it was like someone had hit me with an anvil. You know, suddenly I was responsible for this tiny little <laughs> scrap of humanity. I was thinking, gosh, the, the responsibility is Gosh, the feeling of being responsible is almost overwhelming, but I have such a lovely husband and he's so placid and calm. And if I was sitting there sobbing my eyes out, he would say, it's okay, Fran, look, I'll take Celine, you have a little snooze. And he would sit in the garden <laughs> chair for 20 minutes while I calm down, you know. So you were milking that for what it was worth then. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, actually. Cause he's I'm a just kidding. <laughs> he's a very sound sleeper, so it's mostly up to me. well that's wonderful I remember watching movies at 3 in the morning with Victor Mature and his Roman sandals thinking (laughs) this is driving me mad no one else is watching movies at 6 in the morning or 3 in the morning while I'm breastfeeding my baby again well just be thankful that there were movies to watch right (laughs) exactly yes exactly now uh, to switch a little bit I want you mentioned in your bio that you uh, in your writing, which we're, we're going to talk about as well, in your book, which I want you to share about. Um, but you said that you have a message, a threefold message, a message of hope, a message of forgiveness, and a message of renewal. So please address that in any way that you uh, would like to. Well, hope is what never leaves us. We can be hopeless optimists, but we need that optimism and we need that hope to keep us moving forward. Renewal is what happens when you let go of the past, because the past is useful in that it informs what you think and what you do. But if you're not careful, it can be like a a shield around you that that keeps out the real world and that blocks progress forward. Um, I had a a picture once in my head of a bunch of blocks in the desert. And the fact is that if you don't let go of things like resentment and grief and sorrow, that the blocks just sit in front of you and they block your progress forward. Hmm. So I, I work very hard on trying to keep things, you know, up to date, current, 
so that I live in the present as much as possible. That seems to me the best way forward, because if you're carrying too many bad memories or too much resentment, it can really make your life very difficult indeed. And what I've realized is if you carry too much resentment, that um, all you're doing is building a wall and trying to cross, trying to get over it at the same time. Because if you think of the world as a place to resent, then you see things to resent all the time that That's aren't right. really there. They aren't really there. And everyone else is really confused. You know, so you notice the effect of that in your personal relationships. And my husband is such a kind man. The last thing I want to do is make his life more difficult. That's very thoughtful. Thank you. Do you address these um, in your memoir, or is your how is your memoir written? Is it written as a novel? Is it from what perspective is it written? What can you share with us about that? Well, it's written um, as interestingly as possible. I try not to take too literal an approach when I'm writing it, and I try to use a sort of pictorial approach because that's what came to me. So the early part, particularly, and I don't know if you if you realize this, but when you were reading it, I don't know if you realized that lots of pictures came up all the time, and that's because that's what I was seeing mm-hmm. writing it. So it was very, very pictorial. As I get older and I can remember it more clearly, it becomes more of a kind of ongoing narrative. Hmm. But towards the end, I do really focus on the lessons I've tried to learn. Yes, yes. Um, and that is really about accepting the world as it is now so that you can let go of the things you wish it was because there's no point trying to get something that you're never going to get. One of the one of the hardest lessons for me has been to learn that there are some things that you can't make work for you. So, for example, I'll never walk normally. I'll never be a ballet dancer and I'll never, you know, abseil across the Grand Canyon, which is fine. But Mm -hmm. when you want to do these things and you can't, it's a recipe for disaster. So you have to learn to live, to do the best you can despite the limitations in front of you and not keep beating yourself up about them. So I've had to learn to, to live in the present, to accept the world as it is and to, to keep my dock clear keep the deck clear of of things like um, anger and resentment and and scorekeeping I don't I try not to keep score anymore Mm. because because that means remembering everything that happened that was wrong sometimes for years or decades back and I don't want to remember all that stuff it takes up a lot of energy in your head that's right exactly it does Mm. take up a lot of energy and wastes a lot of room (laughs) it does it does exactly so exactly so now, what you have uh, also, have you finished your two next books or? I have finished them. Um, I haven't looked at them for a while, but I, I like to think of them as as near to publication ready as they will ever be. The, the second book I've written is called Happiness Matters. And it's really sort of a, an exploration of the ways in which we can make an unpromising situation better or learn to live with our limitations in a way that is benign rather than unkind. Um, I use my writing as a sort of teaching tool. I teach myself as I write, um, and it's really helpful. So it's a self-help book then? Yes, it is. It is. And what about, sorry, go ahead. And the third book is called Making Miracles, Mm -hmm. and it basically takes the lessons from book two and builds on them. 
but it's based on a dream diary that I've kept for the last 15 years. Really? Yes, it is. It's based on a dream diary. So give, um, give us an example. Well, when I was 15, I remember having this dream and it was so vivid. The dreams I try to record in my dream diary are extremely vivid, very, very colorful, and very often just in one picture, but with lots of details. And this one I had, I remember being at a market. It was an open-air market with lots of stalls. And I was um, I was holding this little purse in my left hand, and it was made of snake skin, which kind of shimmered. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was rubbing it with steel wool to try and get it to shine up even more. Um, and I, I was scrubbing it and scrubbing it and scrubbing it with steel wool. And, of course, then I dropped it, and it fell in the dirt, but the shiny side up that I hadn't been scrubbing. And I noticed how bright it was. And that was God really telling me, you know, you don't need to work so hard. If, mm. you just let, if you just let life fall into place, then it will be shiny enough. You don't need to keep pushing so hard. And I was only 15 when I had that dream. So it came to me in a way that I could understand it. And I thought, gosh, and I've never forgotten that message. And Amazing. It is, yeah, it's part of the messages I share as well. And all kinds of messages about the meaning of trees and symbolism and what it means like if you if you realize you're in a dream and you're driving in a car downhill, all this kind of stuff. Yes, yes. So I include all that in the book as well because it's really useful for me and I like to share that sort of thing. So I love dreams. And, now, are uh, these your own interpretations or have you done this through research? No, these are all my own interpretations. Okay. But I like to think that they're sort of fairly universal. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you like the idea of a car, you can use that in lots of different ways. For me, a car represents the state of your, um, either your professional life or your personal life. It can also represent your health concerns. Um, so there's lots of different ways of looking at it. And bikes can also represent different things, bicycles. You know, and trees and rivers, and you meet people as well in your dreams who talk to you, give you messages. So, if you are driving a rusty car, does that mean that you have things in your life that need to be cleaned up? A rusty car quite often means that you might have joint problems, like health problems. Isn't that interesting? Because I had a I had a dream of a green car. Now, green is the the color of health. So if you've got a green car, you're healthy. But one of the hinges at the front door was rusted off. And that basically means your hip needs to be given attention. Hmm. So if you've got rust in your car, quite often it means you've got physical problems or you, you've, you've been given a warning to check out something. You know. Amazing. If your windscreen wipers are busted, it's because you haven't got a clear view ahead of you. You need to clear out your vision. Hmm. Out that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense, yeah. yeah. I can hear the excitement in your voice about this book. I think you're very anxious for it to come out, aren't you? I love this book. Now, yeah. are you releasing both of them at the same time? I don't have a publisher yet, Carol. Oh, I still need okay. A publisher for these. Okay. So okay. I, I can't, I can't look for a publisher right now because I'm still trying to write the radio book for my, for my, the radio play for my book. So tell us about that. I'm writing a radio play of Trapped. Um, just because, I don't know, I got this urge to do it. And it's very, very different from the book because it's dialogue. Of course. It's, it's all dialogue and it's all invented. It sort of has to be invented. You can't remember what you said 24 years ago. But that's okay because it brings up new ideas and new memories. And it, it gives it a completely different slant. You wouldn't think yeah. of the same story at all. It's quite extraordinary. And what do you hope to do with that? 
well, honestly, I hope a producer will come along and say, yeah, we, we would love your, um, your radio play. Let's take it away and produce it. And would you like a part? And would you like to produce it with us? And <laughs> would you like to give us advice on how you think this should be done? And so, yeah. Well, yeah, you I never like, know. I mean, I like good things happen, right? They do, absolutely. Yes, yes. And you absolutely. certainly have the motivation and, yes. the, and the right attitude. Now, in summary, anything you want to share, anything you want to cap, any poss- maybe a possibly a favorite quote of yours, just take the floor and run with it. Do I have any favorite quotes? I really can't remember them offhand. I'm sorry, Carol. I know. Oh I no, should. that's fine. I'm just giving uh, you something to run with to, you know, to summarize what you've shared today. Well, I think one of the most important things is to stop thinking about what you think you want in life and just accept what you have in front of you right now. I think whether that's five minutes or three hours or you know whatever it is, I think it's really important to work from where you are now. Because my habit has been to always look over the fence at the next thing. You know, I can if I, if I can just do this, then I'll be happy. But in fact, if you can be happy now, then you'll do what you want to do and that will bring you what you want. So it's that's really important for me. So you said stop thinking about, repeat that again. Stop thinking about the things you think you want. Okay. So much. But start just being appreciative of what's in front of you right now. So enjoy every minute. So if you can be happy where you are now, then you'll do what you want to do because you're happy. You'll come from happiness. And that will bring you the things you want. So you don't need to push it so hard. Because at the moment, people always say to me, they will say, if only I can have this, then I'll do that, then I'll be happy. But in fact, that's the wrong way around. You should be happy now. Then if you're acting from a place of happiness, you'll do what makes you happy. And then you will automatically bring towards you things you think you want. So it's like turning the whole world on its head, but it's great fun. I love that. No, you're absolutely right. And we hear that more and more and more. It's more stressful you know, people are becoming in their lives and, and you touched on many things, everything from hope to happiness to forgiveness to renewal. I mean, these are all messages that we can't hear enough of. Thank you, Carol. It's been lovely talking to you, you know. And so I really appreciate that and I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. I'm sure that this will um, be a message, like I said, that many people will will grip their hearts because they are possibly going through a similar experience and maybe you will encourage them or maybe you will give them some insight into it's not as bad as we sometimes make it out to be and I think that's a a message that you made very loud and clear today and it is sincerely appreciated thank you so much Carol it's been lovely to talk to you today and you too Fran and we will be waiting for your radio presentation let me be the first to hear about it. Thank you so much. <laughs> and also your books that will be coming out. And this will all be on the web page that I do up for you and all the information for contact and uh, your book and everything else that you shared today. So thank you again, Fran, and goodbye. Thank you so much, Carol. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. 
Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.